invite you to take a Bible and turn almost to the end of the Bible to the short little letter of Titus. You'll come to several letters that start with T, Timothy and Thessalonians, but if you'll turn to Titus chapter 1. Today uh, at our meeting right after the service, we're going to do something that's very, very important. We're going to elect a new class of officers, uh, elders, deacons. The New Testament places strong emphasis on the importance of appointing qualified officers in the church. Now, this may surprise you. It may surprise you to know that the, or to learn that the New Testament offers more instruction regarding elders than on any other important church subject, including the Lord's Supper, baptism, the Lord's Day, or spiritual gifts. There is more instruction in the New Testament regarding elders, also called bishops and overseers, than anything else regarding the church. And also, in that teaching, most of the teaching is about the qualifications for elders. And that's what we will be looking at, part of what we'll be looking at today. Here in Titus chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 4 through verse 9. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Let me pray for us again. Father, now we ask that you would feed us spiritually. You say that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Our souls are hungry, Father. They are needy, and we ask now for nourishment. In Jesus' name, amen. This letter is from the Apostle Paul, who is a missionary, to a young pastor friend named Titus. Uh, Titus was serving the Lord on the island of Crete, off of Greece. It was a big island. It is, it was, and is over 150 miles long, and in certain places it is as wide as 35 miles wide. Uh, there were many people that lived on that island. There were towns scattered all over it. Now, Paul had gone there, and he had evangelized. He had started, he had planted a church. But then he left, and he sent Titus there to organize the church, to set it up, and to set up other churches. And so, in a sense, this letter is a guidebook. It is a manual of doing church, and the principles are the same today as they were then. Now, I want us to look at some of the qualifications and and applications of what it means to have church leaders and why that's so important in all of our lives. But let me give you a few preliminary observations first. Um, there are no perfect churches. If there were immediately perfect churches, Paul would not have had to give instruction to Titus on how to set things up. 
Uh, I've been in through the years in a variety of churches, either as I was growing up or serving on staffs of churches right out of college. And it's not unusual, especially in, in churches that, that uh, promote small groups and home Bible studies, that there would be groups that would say, hey, we want to be a New Testament group. We're, gonna call, we're not going to call our class the Covenant class or the Canterbury class. We're going to call it the New Testament class, as in the others aren't. But the thought, the thinking behind that is, in the New Testament, they had it right. You know, and we've just veered away. The further we've gone along in history, the further away we've gotten from that pure following of Christ. Well, it doesn't take long to realize, which church in the New Testament are you talking about? I mean, in Corinth, that church, there was immorality going on in the congregation. In Galatia, there was false teaching. Uh, each church, each letter we have to churches was to deal with problems that were in the churches. So there, there have never been and there never will be perfect churches because churches are made up of sinners like you and me. And so there are no perfect churches. Secondly, there are no perfect church leaders. These qualifications listed here in Titus, and we find other lists of these elsewhere in the New Testament, you notice they are not based on perfection. They're not based on some kind of superhuman abilities or superhuman giftedness. There's nothing listed here in the qualifications about being sinless, nothing about being perfect, nothing about being a person who never fails or makes mistakes. So my third observation, not only are there no perfect churches, there are no perfect church leaders, my observation is that God does choose to use imperfect churches with imperfect leaders to accomplish his will and to expand his kingdom. God has and he still uses leadership. In fact, rarely in history, biblical history or just church history, rarely do we find God working in history without first raising up godly men, women as leaders. It's been true in the church, it's true in all of life. This past week on the National Geographic Channel, there was a documentary that was uh, highly advertised uh, on, called Restrapo. It, it was about a fire base in Afghanistan, and Sebastian Junger, who wrote The Perfect Storm, and, a, and another cameraman went there, and over a period of a year, they uh, basically spent with the soldiers in, at that time, what at that time, back in 2007, was one of the most uh, highly uh, dangerous places in the whole world. This fire base, an outpost basically, it was called Opis Restrapo, uh, would receive fire and return fire four to seven times a day. I mean, they, they said within just a matter of days, often the, the young soldiers, uh, the, the army rangers that were placed there, had more combat experience than, than many people from, that had been in the military for years. And so th these journalists were able to blend right in over a long period of time, and the, the photography and what they record and the conversations, and it's filled with military language. It's, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Do not go home and say, my pastor told me to watch this, because every other word uh, you'd have to delete. But it, every time as I watch this, the, the leadership is what got these guys through. After one of them got killed, after someone was wounded, when they'd be attacked in the middle of the night, when they were just in, it, your nerves would be frayed. It was the leaders who reminded them what their mission was, who reminded them what they needed to do, who calmed them down. God uses leadership in all spheres of life, but especially he does so 
in the church. So Titus was to appoint elders. He was to look for certain things. Let's look at what they were. This is just one of the short list. Uh, verses 6 to 8 describe those. And the first one, and it's a heading, that must, this man must be blameless. Now, one of the reasons we only have men officers in the Presbyterian Church in America is because all of the list of, of criteria, the qualifications for elders and deacons, when you read the New Testament, are directed toward men. Uh, it's not something we came up with. We think that's the proper interpretation of Scripture. I know that's not politically correct today. I know not everybody here sitting here agrees with it, but that's where we're coming from. That's where we get that. And so you'll see these as I read through them. They're addressed to men. That's who they describe. But an elder must be blameless. Uh, and that doesn't mean perfect. It means that he can't be charged with some offense. Uh, it's This person publicly is known as someone whose life matches what they say they believe. Uh, it's not necessarily how the man views himself. We are keenly aware of our own sins and uh, inadequacies and inconsistencies. But in the eyes of others, in the church and in the community, this man is seen as blameless. Uh, not living a double life, not a hypocrite. Uh, now, he gets specific on what areas should this person be blameless. And he deals with relationships in, in verse 6. He says he must be blameless. Now, one example is the husband of but one wife. Now, few phrases in the New Testament have caused such controversy in the church uh, more than this phrase here. And the controversy comes, well, is saying, well, does that mean the person has to be married? Does that mean that if a man is a widower or divorced or a bachelor who's never been married, does that disqualify this person? Well, I, th I think the literal translation helps us understand it. The literal translation is, he's a one-woman man. Literally, it says, when it says he must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, he's a one-woman man. In other words, this man is above reproach in his fidelity and his faithfulness to his marriage partner. He has an exclusive and unquestioned devotion to his wife. And I'll even put it this way. His marriage is worth imitating. Now, that's the standard that's being placed here. He is a one-woman man. And then it moves on to another area of relationships where he's to believe blameless. And that's in the area of parenting. Look again at the latter part of, of verse 6. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. The Puritans used to say that a man could not pastor a big church until he could pastor a little church, the family. The big church was a congregation, and he couldn't pastor that unless he, until he could pastor his little church, the family. I have known here and elsewhere men who through the years have resigned from church office, either as elders or deacons, and primarily it's over this area, that maybe just in their own minds, not always in the minds of others, they thought, I cannot be qualified at this time. My family is not in order. My leadership in the home is not what it ought to be here. The point, I think the point is that a man is not ready for the responsibilities of spiritual leadership and, the, and caring for other people's souls 
if he is not willing and able to take responsibility for those in his own household. And it's important to, to note the, the wording here. The Greek word for children here means children, little children. There were various words in the New Testament for someone that was a child being a grown child. This means children at home. Now, I know society's different. In those days, you became an adult around 14 years of age. Now, we've not gone from the boomer generation to the boomerang generation where they all come back, you know, and, and keep living at home. I'll stop there. But this means little children. And it's plural. In other words, it's not necessarily saying, okay, there's a six-year-old. Let's scrutinize his six-year-old son or daughter, and that will determine whether this man serves as an elder or a deacon or is qualified. Now, the picture is you're not necessarily zeroing in on one child when it says children. It means is the person's home in order? Uh, is the man seeking to minister to his family? Is he engaged in the spiritual development of his family? Is he, or is he taking a hands-off? Is he detached? Is he uninvolved? Uh, does he show concern for the spiritual development of his children? Is that a priority with this man? Also, he should be blameless in the area of conduct, verses 7 and 8. And it gives a whole list of what not to be and what to be. I'm not going to get very detailed on this now, but he's not to be, according to this list, overbearing, quick-tempered, given to drunkenness, violent, pursuing dishonest gain. Those are the don't-be words. He should be hospitable. That means a lover of strangers. One who loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, dignified. Now, I have to point out, Everything here in this list required of elders is required of all believers, right? I mean, this is not new when we're reading this. It's not as though, well, where did these come from? And so, for example, when it says he should not be a drunkard, that doesn't imply that, well, if you're not an officer, you can be a binge drinker all the time. It, it doesn't mean that when it says the elders must not be a lover of money, that that frees everybody else up to make money their God. It's not saying that. What it means is that these qualities that are required of all followers of Christ must be especially obvious, must be especially and particularly present in the leaders in local churches. And so their lives serve as, I love this phrase, incarnational demonstrations of a life submitted to God and a person growing in grace and dependence on him. Now, when that happens, there's a powerful effect, and that's what verse 9 deals with. It's it basically saying the result of this is that he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that, here's the result, he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Well, what is this message in verse 9 when it says this trustworthy message? Well, I think verse 4 tells us, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This message is the gospel. This message is what we call around here the bad news, good news. Hopefully you hear it almost every sermon at least mentioned or expounded in some degree. The gospel essentially is that God created us, our, our ancient 
forefather and mother, Adam and Eve, they had a perfect relationship with God, literally walked and talked with him. They had a spiritual sense they were born with that we are not. But they disobeyed God, they violated his commandment, and as a result, they were cut off from God. They died spiritually. You and I are born into this world in that condition. We are dead spiritually. And we may try to earn God's favor, we may try to live by some code that we think will make us right with him, but the Bible says we have two problems, sin and death. And we can't overcome those problems of sin and death. You cannot do enough good things somehow or another to erase the sin in your life, whether that sins of thought or word or action. So God saw our plight. Even back in Genesis, he promised there with Adam and Eve, he would send one who would come later, a redeemer. That was Jesus. That's what the first Christmas that we talk about is all about. God's son becoming a man. He lived a perfect life. Even his enemies could not accuse him credibly of anything he'd ever done wrong. And he died on the cross. Now what happened was not just a capital punishment at the hands of the Romans. What happened was that he served as a sacrifice, a substitute. On the cross, here was Jesus sinless, no sin of his own. Here's Chip. And God said, I made you, Chip. I want to have life with you, but there's this problem. This problem is sin. I must punish sin. And so he transferred my sin onto Christ, and he placed it on Christ and punished him in my place. And so now, by believing in that, by believing that Christ is the way that I can be forgiven, I have now life with God, forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. That's the good news. The first part's the bad news. That's the good news. An elder, what he's saying here, must hold tight to that message. That we each day have to come back to the gospel message, this trustworthy message. And as we do so, we're in a position then to refute error and to give hope to others. People are not encouraged. I don't know about you, but I'm not encouraged, and I doubt if you are, by a leader who seems no different from the world. A church leader who you're not even sure if the person's a believer. That doesn't encourage anyone. But at the same time, I'm not encouraged if I'm around a person who gives the impression that they're perfect that they're on some higher plane than I'm on. And so what leaders should be in God's church are those who are submissive to Christ, dependent on his grace, and living by that day by day. And as they do so, they demonstrate then that what the Christian life is. Now, I don't often do this, but I want to read you a story. I want to read you something that happened that Steve Brown tells about in his book, What Was I Thinking? About the power of encouragement when people see, especially a church leader, live by God's grace. Here's what he wrote. I remember when Sam came into my office confessing that he had stolen money from the city in which he was the city purchasing agent. It wasn't a lot of money, but if you steal $10, there's no less stealing than if you'd pocketed $10,000. Sam had lowered the price of a confiscated car that was being sold by the city. The car was priced at $600, and he marked it down to $450 so he could buy it for his daughter. No one would have ever known had it not been for a major audit of city records and the fact that Sam was thrown in with some really big-time embezzlers who had taken money from the city for years. Again, the amount wasn't what was important. My friend was guilty, and he told me so. The next day, Sam's name was in the local paper, and three or four months later, he went to trial and was convicted. He was an officer in our church, and because we had so many new Christians, 
I ask if we could use his story to teach them how Christians should deal with sin. Of course, the matter is never one of whether Christians sin. That's a given. The only question is how we will deal with it. Steve, Sam said, that would be a privilege. I would like what I've done to be of use to the kingdom. It's a long story, he said. I don't have time for the details. But the end of the story, though, is so good, I have to share it with you. Sam resigned from the board of deacons, and during the entire process of his trial, when he was without a job and facing the horror of his shame, the entire church stood with him emotionally, financially, and spiritually. I'll never forget the scene after Sam was, along with others, found guilty. The others held press conferences at which they proclaimed their innocence. But in the courthouse rotunda, a whole bunch of Christians surrounded Sam, placed their hands on his head, and prayed that God would be glorified through this sad episode. Many tears were shed amid great joy that God was in charge. The day Sam was restored to the board of deacons, the entire congregation applauded. Now, I think that's what Paul is talking about here. The encouragement. He can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. It's just not the words we say. It's the life that's seen. Many of you know I was a campus minister for five years before we moved here. I was around college students 95% of my time. I, I was at Ole Miss, and I was at the University of Arkansas. Uh, and here's, here's one of the liabilities. As, a, as an older Baptist preacher told me once when I was at Arkansas, he said, Chip, campus ministry is the Disney world of ministries. Now, what he meant, you're around people that are interested. You can choose who you want to minister to. You know, it's not like a church that has membership that they're all there and you come. I mean, you can pick them. You know, that's the way it is. Uh, you, uh, you could, they're, they're flexible in their time. They don't want to see you on the weekends. <laughs> I mean, he just went down. You know, they're responsive to the gospel, their lives. They can recommit their life. And, I mean, they'll go from one direction to being a, a missionary to China the next week. It's a fantastic ministry. It's the, I, I'm still wholeheartedly committed to it. But here's a liability as far as being a campus minister. Guess who I was around all the time? I was around younger people. I knew more than they knew about the Bible. Uh, I had more life experience than they had, even though I was only eight years older or so. Uh, I had been a Christian longer than they had. I was the answer man. You know, they come and ask my advice on stuff. Uh, and after a period of time, I don't... That was not healthy for me. So when we moved here, uh, first thing we did was put an addition on a house. So I'm around Jim Bruce, Mac Lucas. I'm around these various elders in this church, many of whom have gone now to be with the Lord. I'm, I'm around rubbing shoulders with guys who's had children die, who've had wives die, who've gone through hard times of life, who, who are doing exactly what this is. They're still holding firm. And it was my initial major experience to know what it's like to be around elders. Now, I was one, but I really wasn't one. I was a pastor on the church, and yet when I got with these guys, and still to this day, school was in session. And I asked more questions, and I didn't do much talking. Now, that's what's encouraging. Now, I've got just a couple of minutes left. Part of this role of elders is they are to refute opposers, it says in verse 9, because false teaching can disrupt entire households. Never, ever, ever underestimate 
the damage that can be done with false teaching. If you go to a liberal church, and I don't mean politically liberal, I mean theologically liberal that doesn't believe the Bible and doesn't believe the gospel, the bad news, good news, is just basically teaching be a good person, try as hard as you can be, you know, be respectable and you'll go to heaven. If there's a heaven, there's certainly in a hell. That's what you'll hear, you know. If you don't think that will affect your children or your grandchildren, you better think again. Because it, false doctrine disrupts entire households. And it may not be when the kids are six, but when they're 16 and 26, some of those seeds then have borne fruit. And you wonder why the person says, why can't I believe there's any truth in the world about anything, and especially religious truth? Re elders have a responsibility to refute then opposers. Also, though, uh, they have a responsibility to oversee the flock and be encouraging. Now, here's a difficult balance for those of us. I'm going to speak now from the position of a church officer as you seek to elect officers in just a few moments. Even though people make choices and we're responsible for God for our own choices, and often we make bad choices and destructive, sinful choices, I as a pastor have to realize if this person makes a terrible choice and they're in the church and they're under my care, that's their responsibility. That is that woman or man's choice. But at the same time, I share that responsibility by saying, was there so little evident power of the gospel in that person's life because of my example? I read of a pastor in a small church in a small town, and there were three cases of adultery within just a short few weeks. He could have easily passed the blame on to those involved, but he honestly had to ask the question, and those of us who are elders have to ask this, am I part of the problem? You say, what's the connection? They chose to commit adultery? Now, what would the pastor or the elders have to do with that? Well, the question has to be, was there so little power of the gospel seen in my life that they couldn't call on it upon themselves in their own choices? Now, that's, that's part of what we live with. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said it right about spiritual leadership. He said, anyone called to serve in pastoral, elder, shepherding roles is pulled from two tensions. One tension is, who is adequate for these things? You know, we see our own sin, and we say, I, say, I can't do this. And yet, the other tension that pulls us back is, the need's too great to walk away from. It. You know, so who's adequate? But I can't forsake it. I can't leave. And so that example is very, very important. So here's my summary, okay? Here's my summary, and I'm not quoting anybody else. I try to tell you when I, I try not to plagiarize. I try to tell you if I'm quoting someone. But, uh, you know, I was told of a guy in Paducah, Kentucky, that was plagiarizing sermons, and this is how bad it got. Paducah, Kentucky. He stood up one day and said, I was on the subway this past week. A minister from his denomination told me he got in a lot of trouble for that. I guess he should have at least read the sermon from Manhattan before he decided to, to uh, use it. Here's my summary, and this is mine. The local church is a group of sinners saved by grace who individually and collectively are becoming conformed to the image of Christ in their beliefs and in their actions. 
The church elders are appointed by the Lord to serve as examples of men experiencing the life-transforming power of the gospel. The result of that will be the encouragement of God's people and the refutation of opponents of the truth. As we watch, as we see that in others, we'll be encouraged. Let me give you one last story, then I'm finished. For a thousand years, people tried to break the four-minute mile in running. Uh, It was broken the year before I was born. But people had tried to break it since the ancient Greeks. Folklore had it that the Greeks had lions chase runners, thinking that would make them run faster. They also tried drinking tiger's milk, not the stuff you buy at the health store. Nothing worked. So it was finally concluded. It was decided and concluded that it was impossible. It was physically impossible for a human to run a mile in under four minutes. So for a thousand years, everyone believed it. They said our bone structure was wrong. The wind resistance was too great. We had inadequate lung capacity. There were a million reasons. But then one man, on May the 6th, 1954, in Oxford, England, Roger Bannister, ran a mile in under four minutes. Miracle of miracles. But now guess what happened? The very next year, after a thousand years, no one had done it. The very next year, 37 runners broke the four-minute mile. The year after that, 300 runners broke the four-minute mile. And it was only a few years later that in New York City there was a major race and there were 13 runners. All 13 runners, including the loser, broke the four-minute mile. What happened? Wind resistance change? Did our bone skeletal structure suddenly uh, modify itself? No. Here's what happened. One person did it. And others saw that it was possible. What changed were human attitudes. God puts elders in churches to say that gospel transformation is possible. It's possible to be a growing Christian because I see it in that person's life who is daily dependent on the grace of God. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for your church. We pray that you might give us a love for it. And not not the building, not not the traditions, not... not, uh, external things, but your work and how you're carrying out your ministry and the, the Great Commission throughout the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll take your order of worship, uh, I invite you to stand and note in the order of worship the doxology. We'll